Welcome everyone to Discipleship Podcasts with the Bend International Church of Christ. I'm Joey Hungerford and I just want to introduce you to season eight of our podcast, which is the year 2023. And we're exploring a lot of real life theology this year, the Holy Spirit, uh, faithful faith, the grand meta narrative of the Bible, disciple making, and so much more. So I'm excited that you're here. I hope that you stay tuned. Please give us a review and share it with your friends. God bless. So how do we remain faithful for a lifetime? If we're going to respond to God's grace, if we see God's grace all around us, the question is, can God see our faith? I want to start off with some illustration, paint a picture that starting well isn't what counts when it comes to your faith. Anyone recognize that guy? I wouldn't have recognized him, but he's Andrew Carnegie. I'll bring him up in this illustration. (laughs) There's a seismic shift that's happened in America, especially at the university level. And what what I'm getting to is that most universities started from a place of faithfulness. And and then we look around at universities, and we don't really see them in a place of faithfulness today, but a place of secularization. Make my point, Harvard University, 1636. um, Each student was required to study the Bible twice a day, consider the main end of his life and studies to know God in Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That was the motto started by the Puritans. No longer the motto. (laughs) 1693, the Anglicans, they started the College of William and Mary in Virginia Virginia, to equip a seminary of ministers of the gospel so that the Christian religion may be propagated amongst the Western Indians to the glory of Almighty God. Three more. 1700, Yale College. Um, Same thing. Actually, Lux A Veritas, light and truth, the original motto. Let's bring this forward, what we see in the Gospels. Princeton University came about 1730s, 1740s, during the Great Awakening. Columbia University, 1754. I'm not going to mention every denomination. I have them here in my notes. But we're beginning to see the picture. These people start out wanting to bring the Gospel forward, wanting to equip, wanting people to be in the Bible. 1755, Queen's College, their motto, enter upon the sacred ministerial office in the church of God. So one part of this and why I bring up Andrew Carnegie is when he came along and after selling his businesses in the steel empire, uh, he did a lot for universities, built a lot of buildings, lots of philanthropy, but actually had a clause that you can only have this money if you don't have a religious affiliation. And so very slowly, a lot of colleges in Scotland and all over Europe and in the U.S. changed mottos, changed mission statements, changed policies. Or when it came to affiliation with the Carnegie money or with local churches, they cut ties with local churches and the dollar won over. It's pretty well documented in a lot of circumstances. Just to give one specific reason, but there's many specific reasons of why people lose faithfulness over time. I'll give one more example. These young men, the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, started by John Mott. 
He trained and commissioned over 20,000 missionaries through YMCA, wrote a book, The Evangelization of the World in This Generation, that still has an effect today. He was given the Nobel Peace Prize for what this did to transform local communities, and today it's rebranded the Y and no longer has those Christian roots. Needless to say, something shifted between then and now. All that remains of the Christian influence on these universities are fossils and relics, perhaps a chapel here or a chapel there that's not in attendance. One historian, George Marsden, says it this way, the American university system was built on a foundation of evangelical Protestant colleges. Most of the major universities evolved directly from such 19th century colleges. But as late as 1870, the vast majority of these were remarkably evangelical. Most of them had clergymen presidents who taught courses defending biblicist Christianity and who encouraged periodic campus revivals. Yet within half a century, the universities that emerged from these evangelical colleges, while arguably carrying forward the spirit of their evangelical forebears, had become conspicuously inhospitable to the letter of such evangelicalism. By the 1920s, the Protestantism of old-time colleges had been effectively excluded from leading university classrooms. So there's their scholarly reference for all of those examples. Not only educational institutions in which faithfulness matters for the long haul, you look at entire church movements like Methodism and the First Great Awakening of America, an incredible revival. Hitting the shores of America within 30 years, one out of three people, 30% of the population was a Methodist. That's incredible. And people, after visiting three times, they were asked to become a part of a high-commitment covenant community. They were issued a ticket for 12 more meetings. This was their ticket of membership to keep being a part of the covenant. It had to be renewed quarterly. You had to give a penny weekly. If you just showed up when you wanted and said what you wanted, no, that wasn't allowed. Your membership would be revoked. Today, that kind of commitment, John Wesley, he... His holiness would have had him branded as a dangerous fundamentalist. But this was a high faith, high expectations environment. Every Methodist was expected to have a ministry. At least one in ten had a formal leadership position in the movement. As disciples matured, they would take on more responsibilities. They'd become street preachers and then a Sunday school, then preachers, then they would have a new preaching appointment to produce converts in a new area, then they'd become a Christian worker, then a pastor deacon to gain more converts and start a new church. Once they had started a new church, given evidence that they could equip others and plant a church, they could become a pastor. Only those effective in discipling and training others became pastors, learning in the field. But eventually, Methodism drifted from high levels of commitment to leniency. It became an accepted institution of society. It lost its evangelistic zeal. Practices like confession of sin, accountability groups faded away. Members became more refined. The clergy was professionalized. And once commitment wanes, it is almost impossible to recover. Most of the preachers left their circuits and joined seminary to learn Greek and Hebrew so that they could become professionals. And after liberal theology set in with other splits and conflicts, Today, it is no longer one out of three people in America. Today is a decimated movement. 
It's not about how you start, but about how you remain faithful. Starting well isn't what counts. There's an article I appreciate from a friend, Roger Lamb, I talk to weekly. He's an excellent pastor, has served our movement of churches for quite some time. He wrote this in 2005. He called it Old Grumpy Christians. But I think it just describes faithless disciples. And again, I'm not the most faithful disciple in this room. Anyone who's more mature in the faith has fought countless battles to get there. I wouldn't describe anyone in our family as old or grumpy. However, I do believe the latent potential to be grumpy is within each and every one of us. Faith can wane. So every year, Roger renews his vow to not become faithless, to not become an old, grumpy Christian. I mean, can we even imagine the Holy Spirit becoming grumpy? Roger Lamb was married his last year of college in 1968. Senior Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy were assassinated. By 1976, he had two children, and he was one of the preaching ministers for a church of about 120 in Illinois, so not exactly the center of the universe. And he writes in this article on Old Grumpy Christians that after hiring a campus minister, which was novel at the time, to go onto campuses for any Christian activity, that fall they experienced a radical spiritual renewal in the church led by the campus ministry. At first, they were amazed at dozens of student baptisms. Then, they were convicted by the incredible changes in their lives. They soon saw that for Roger, he only had three options. He could run this new campus minister out of town, leave himself, or live the life of a true disciple. One Sunday, he scrapped his sermon to publicly recommit his life to Jesus as Lord and to repent of his own lukewarmness. Then he called the entire church to recommit their lives also to radical commitment and discipleship. 80% of the church responded, including the elders and most of the deacons. God blessed them with hundreds of campus teams and singles and marrieds becoming baptized disciples over the next few years. But what are those who didn't respond to the call to repentance? Well, naively, it shocked Roger that anyone who would go to church regularly would not want to have their life and doctrine consistent. He learned a lot more about the scriptures and the way people responded to Jesus and early Christians when he saw people become more and more critical, cynical, and grumpy. He tried to be patient and involve everyone. But some of the members just were not moved that so many people were leaving darkness and embracing the light. To him, many of them became grumpy old Christians. And then Roger noticed a pattern. There were many ministries springing up on the major campuses of the Midwest. All of them began as part of an established church. In almost every case, these young campus ministers were opposed by grumpy old Christians who often feared the implications of the newly committed but immature lives or feared the reactions of other members. Some just feared change. The grumpy element wanted to set the agenda for the church and grew even grumpier whenever they didn't get their way. Many good-hearted Christians felt that loving these people meant to appease them, which only gave the power struggle over to the negative folks or to those who were least mature in their faith. This was truly pouring new wine into old wineskins. Often the wineskin or the congregation split and the new wine, the young Christians, wound up disillusioned or damaged by their faith in the process. As they saw hundreds then thousands of lives come to Christ, it dawned on Roger. One day, 
that he was going to be one of these older Christians. He didn't really understand the forces that created cynicism and faithlessness at that time, or how God grew his people through the Bible. But he did know that the critical ones weren't the ones changing the world, so he made a vow to God that he would never become a grumpy old Christian. Now as he looks around our congregation, he's always been the old guy, but he sees a lot of the young radicals now joining the Gray Hair Club, the graying establishment. The key is to retain our passion and faithfulness for God, for each other and for the lost. But how to do so later in life when you have less energy, more aches and pains, and much more responsibility? When Roger made that vow at 30, he hadn't experienced these things as he now views them. And Roger lists close friends betraying him, intense persecution from the world for Jesus' sake, disappointment and disillusionment for others' sin, his own unrealized dreams and life circumstances, serious damage to others from his own sin, a child and a wife stricken with cancers bearing incredibly low cure rates, his heroes in the faith being disunified and grumpy, our family of churches turning into a corporation of churches, relationships changed into a sales force, brothers and sisters in the Lord turning their back on God, including some in his own family, seeing longtime disciples suddenly disconnect their behavior from their previous convictions, publicly unleashing their tongues, destroying the faith of many, disciples falling to the modern culture of accusation and license, seeing our commitment and sacrifice for missions and the poor be attacked and accused of something evil, after 38 years of ministry, having to persuade some people why we should receive support. Roger writes, Over the years as the devil wounded me, and as I often joined in with my own sin, I felt my heart developing hard calluses of protection that kept God and other people from getting as close as they used to be. I didn't get excited about people searching for God. I didn't have time to study the Bible with people. Sharing my faith was a bore or a job instead of a thrilling opportunity to see God work. I shifted from what I could do for God to what the church could do for me. The more my heart hardened, the more I saw other people as the problem. The less I saw myself in the mirror of God's word, and the less I saw discipling. I was becoming the grumpy old Christian. Thank God for a godly wife and friends. It hit me. This is how marriages, families, and churches grow cold. It is scary to see how my heart can harden to God sometimes gradually and sometimes quickly. Those of us who have been disciples for a while have a decision to make. Our churches need to get our zeal back with a more mature understanding. Our young people need to see some radical biblical faith and zeal. Are we going to be the grumpy old Christian that the young minister has to explain to the new zealous disciple who's trying to reconcile his newfound faith with our grumpiness? Or are we going to be the old zealous disciple with faith refined by fire and wisdom matured from a life full of choices to rejoice in the Lord always. Which one do you think gives that young disciple hope for his future and hope for the world to be saved? And over four times in the Hebrew scriptures, a leader called out to God asking for death rather than to continue. Elijah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Moses. And like Roger, his faith refined by fire through the years and trials I'm thankful for heroes in the faith that don't become old and grumpy, but remain faithful. It brings hope to new disciples like me.
All of that to say that starting well isn't what counts when it comes to faithfulness. So last sermon, we talked about faithful faith in Hebrews 11, which gives us the example of people starting well and then finishing well, like Abraham doesn't know where he's going, doesn't know the plan, doesn't know the budget, but obeyed God and was faithful to the call. And God said, you're going to start this whole nation. Even though he's an older man, okay, God, I will go. No plan, no direction, but God called him. We also referenced that church planting movement over in Africa, revival we see under Shadonke Johnson, just ordinary people answering a similar call to go and make disciples. We talked about it. You know, we see all those incredible examples of faith. It's the call for us to take courage and imitate the faith, according to Hebrews 13, 7. It says, imitate the faith of your leaders. So I think we can even bring examples closer to home, just to lift up faithfulness of people in this room. You know, Madison and I moved here, and Madison, hey, kid number three on the way, we're remaining faithful. I just praise her for being a part of a small church where we don't have other children. That takes some faith, and I didn't have that much faith leaving home and comfort and family and moving here because Jesse was already here, so I was kind of just piggybacking on his faith. But other people are faithful. Um, you know, I lift up Roy and, and Janet with uh, nine puppies. That takes some faith. <laughs> it takes some faith, and Roy and Janet have uh, so much more responsibility than I do in their lives, and years and years of faithfulness beyond me. I'm not the most faithful person in this room. We look around the state of Oregon. We're, we're doing that prayer call this Tuesday night um, with our other Oregon house churches who over the six years have been started by faithful people. Up in Portland, it's the Boyds. I was just on the phone with Kelly. He's at the office starting to take out a social security, and they're running around doing three different campus Bible talks in Portland in their 60s. That takes a little bit of faith, faith worth imitating. In Corvallis, the Jensen's, um, they've actually restarted the Corvallis church three times as a small house church. That takes some faith. When 2020 hit, they went down to three people. That takes some faith. They've had baptism since then, and they're back up to a few more people. One of their children has special needs, but they faithfully lead a house church week after week. And in Salem, it was Aaron Ford who moved there as a single man, and, and then Carrie moved there and worked at the state capitol, both of them singles, both had previous marriages, and then baptized their coworkers and ended up finding other people to marry. And now they're both happily married in a small church in Salem, Oregon. But I can imagine moving or starting those wondering, well, my family has a lot of needs, or will I be able to meet somebody else? Or, hey, I'm just a single guy. Could I really lead a church? Isn't that something for married people to do? All these house churches around Oregon are examples of the faith to imitate. Starting well isn't what counts. Let's get into some verses today. You don't get Hebrews 13.7, imitate the faith of your leaders, without knowing a faithful faith, like Hebrews 11, those examples of Abraham and others stepping forward on faith. But you don't get Hebrews 11 without a Hebrews 10, which says, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That's what I want to get into today. Before we even talk about the one another or the horizontal discipleship, we got to talk about the vertical discipleship. 
And how can we get spurred on just from our faithful relationship with Christ? Amen, guys? Amen. Amen. I'm going to skip this illustration for now. Maybe we'll come back to it. <laughs> Over in Philippians 1.6, and then again in Philippians 2.13, we read this. We even read in Hebrews 11 that they had a faith that went through persecution. Sometimes they were sawed in two. Or you look at the faith of Apostle Paul in prison, writing this in Philippians, and yet content. When he is going through a faith challenge himself, he's spurring others on in their faith. It's pretty incredible. So he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. So hey, just from this passage, what are some things you're learning about God? What are some things you're learning about people or yourself? What do we see here? God's working through you. <laughs> Anthony's prayer at the beginning of service that God's will be done. Absolutely. There's something about God. What about people? That's also a kind of about people. You hit both right there. Yeah, yeah. I want to hear from one more. I love it. That's what it says. That's what it says. I told Maddie I was going to ask these questions in service. She said, it's going to be awkward. I said, yeah, but it's one awkward question away from somebody discovering something much better than me just telling it to them. This is what's needed, I think, first most for grounding and resilience in your faith. To know that God is working something through you for his good purposes. When you hit a conflict, when you hit a tragedy in life, when you're going through a crisis, know that this challenge is both your calling and believe that something is being formed within you that God could only do through this challenge. When it's something tearing at your faith, and you actually are aligning yourself with God's will, but tragedy still comes, like being imprisoned, like Apostle Paul, what is it that God is forming within you by which you were required to go through this circumstance? Viktor Frankl is very famous writing, um, oh, what's that book, Man's Quest for Meaning, going through Nazi concentration camps and saying, by going through it and having realistic hope and seeing Scripting the meaning out of it, what is God doing even through this circumstance? That's important if we're going to have a faithful faith, that God is working. That he could only do through this challenge. Never forget to find meaning even in a hopeless situation. We hit those situations quite often. But thing is, when you have that, when your identity is secure and grounded in the love, hope, and faith of God, meaning in the circumstances assured, even when facing failure, resistance, rejection, imprisonment like Paul, or the persecutions like Hebrews 11, you have to see God within it. Long-term faithfulness often accompanies people who grow in their adaptive capacity to be a lifelong learner of where God is working. Even navigating necessary losses with hope and courage. And I think that's a key word to say, yeah, this was a necessary loss in order for God to accomplish his will. It's disciples that understand things like James 1, 
that sometimes conflict and suffering is formational in order to teach endurance, in order to complete our maturity in our faith. That's a hard one to understand, right? So that after imprisonments and persecution, seeing things like Jesus will complete a good work in you. That's Paul saying Jesus will be faithful to do this. God will do his part. Abraham, go into that land because God will do his part. Amen, guys? So Paul says things like this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And this is a little more on the part of people, right? Mm -hmm. What does it say about people? Quite a lot. (laughs) But it also says that finishing is important, right? So I'm still talking about the vertical discipleship. It's all about relationship. I referenced this a couple of sermons ago. All about your faithful relationship with God. Because if it's not about relationship, if you're just doing all this other Christian activity, I made this illustration as well, it's like preparing for the wedding, but not preparing for the marriage. And the marriage is that lifelong faithfulness to God. I've read that the average wedding total per state ranges from 19,000 in Utah, I guess a lot of people are getting married there, to 49,000 in Rhode Island. And I guess there's some richer people in Rhode Island. And yet, we know that statistically, 50% of those marriages will end in divorce. A lot of people prepare for the wedding, but not the marriage. Or some people prepare for the salvation, but not the discipleship afterwards. Mm. Not the marathon, the marriage, the lifelong faithfulness. Don't put too much emphasis on starting, because it's finishing that counts. Keep running the race, keeping the faith. And, you know, we're starting to get to the horizontal aspect, and that's just Christian community that's needed in order to keep the faith together. We talked about it a few weeks ago from John 17. It's oneness, being known and loved by God and secure in that identity first, knowing and loving others in this room, going after knowing each other and allowing ourselves to be known by one another. Those are the relationships that we're all about, and those are the relationships we need to remain faithful. Mm -hmm. A couple more psalms for us to keep it on God. This is how faithful God is. This is something that can help ground you to have a resilient faith. Anthony's smiling. (laughs) He must love this. All right, well, you know I'm going to ask what does this say about God and what does it say about people. So let's read it first. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord. For I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. And then in chapter, well, a few verses later, actually, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. What are some things you guys are learning about God, learning about people or yourself when you hear that passage? Reliance on God. Yeah. I like that. It requires a complete surrender of self, is what he's saying. Ooh, like, that's big, undivided heart. One thing I'll throw up, but yeah, complete surrender. Wow. 
One more. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. It's repeated several times, right? That God has a faithfulness that can be relied on. So how are we able to commit to being faithful to God? Well, it's because of God's faithfulness to us in the first place. How can we have a wholehearted, like Veronica said, surrendered faith and assurance in God? Again, it's because God is faithful and pretty wholehearted towards us. That's how we can commit to being faithful to God, with assurance, with confidence, with hope, because God is going to do his part. Horizontal discipleship. Oh, more on the vertical, I suppose. Maybe that was supposed to be horizontal. <laughs> well, I'll say this. Often in the horizontal, the Holy Spirit is going to encourage you to remain faithful by the person on your left and your right. That's our one another discipleship. Yeah, I'm sorry, Veronica, but um, <laughs> you'll have to stick it out just with God. <laughs> All right, so we're on this slide. I'll skip to this part. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Oh, yeah, this is vertical. This is the thing. Hebrews 10 starts in the vertical, which is where we should all start, and then it flows into the horizontal. So we got to get a good head start here. Verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having a heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Very similar to the psalm, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll skip our questioning on that one. But it starts here. Later in verse 10, it gets into spur one another on, and we'll read that in a moment. And it also gets into, hey, stop sinning or you'll end up in a lake of fire. <laughs> but sometimes we jump straight to that verse <laughs> or straight to the spur one another on verse. But before that, do you have this hope, unswerving? You know, I don't think a person is willing to be spurred on if they don't have a hope like this, an assurance in God like this, if they don't see God working through that spurring on. And so that's why we have to start right here for this lifelong relationship of faithfulness. Lifelong relationship that looks like unswervingly the hope we profess. As faithful to God as God has been faithful to us. And again, this is all the lead into Hebrews 11 and the heroes of faith right there. You don't get the faith like that without the assurance and the hope like this. If it's meant to be lifelong, we got to get serious about our discipleship. And this is a key discipleship verse right here. Not for your discipleship with Jesus alone, but our one another Christian community, relying on that as well. Discipleship deepens our faith. Discipleship grows our faith. Discipleship influences our faith, helps us to remain faithful. So here it says, encourage one another towards love and good deeds, but it's also encouraging one another towards faithfulness at the end of the day. You know, before it's, hey, I, you know, my priority is for you to make another disciple. No, it's for you to remain faithful for life. Mm 
Amen, guys? All throughout Hebrews, the author will urge us to keep investing in each other's lives as we disciple each other. So yes, verses 24 and 25 says, let us consider, consider, so really think about this, how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. How do we stay faithful to God? who has stayed faithful to us, we spur each other on. Consider what that looks like. (laughs) Consider what spurring one another on looks like. And my biggest point in the sermon is it looks like connecting people to the vertical first and to Jesus first and the hope they profess first and that God is working through them and transforming them first. So it might look like, hey, this is what I think you should do, but what do you think God thinks you should do? (laughs) Is a good way to keep it on God. If you back up in Hebrews, we draw near to God with a faithful faith, verses 22 and 23. Our faithfulness to him is based on his undying faithfulness to us, in verse 23. And then in 24 and 25, we encourage each other in the faithful faith by meeting together and encouraging one another. I think God very intentionally tied meeting together because it's hard to spur each other on if you don't meet together. Get together. So how do we remain faithful for the long time? Why does Jesus require both salvation and discipleship and a faithful relationship with him? It's because salvation isn't an event. It's a lifelong relationship. And discipleship deepens that relationship by sustaining and expanding our faith. So how do we encourage one another, spur one another on towards that faithful faith? I just want to give a couple examples. Friday night, I, I mentioned it in the good news sharing that Holy Spirit encouraged me through that. Yeah, singing songs to each other. We all just worship together. We can hear one another's voices. That's one way to spur each other on. We're all meeting together right now. Um, coming over and just fellowshipping again, like what happened on Friday night. Sersha has been encouraging me lately because she has some um, this morning devotional, and we hit the same It's called The Family Way. We hit it every single morning at breakfast, and she colors a little page. And The Family Way this week is we encourage one another using only words that build each other up and bless others. So she's memorizing that. And we just go through examples. What does it look like to encourage others, to bless others? And usually I have to remind her, like, well, I just made you breakfast, didn't I? (laughs) And things like that. How can you encourage others, compliment others? But what I do at Search every morning in learning that family way is what we should be doing in considering how can we spur others on towards love and good deeds. Actually consider that, meditate on it, chew on it, and then swallow it and go and do it. A couple other suggestions. Let's see what I have at the end here. I have, I'll leave it there so you can begin meditating on this. But it's a good time to think about how you can practically do that. To encourage each other towards faithful faith. To commit to faithfully responding to what God has revealed today. How to specifically spur each other towards love, towards good deeds. How to make sure that we're meeting together. What does that look like practically? How to be more, how to intentionally exhort, admonish, encourage, build up, bless each other. 
Or to consider, have you been discipled in your faith? When was the last time that happened? You know, I just throw out again, uh, Madison's pregnant, and in gratitude to you all, I, I'm grateful for the patience you sometimes give us. Like coming over on a Friday night because the kids are asleep, and we can't necessarily go out ourselves. But now we have a third baby, and so I just thank every on the way. So I just thank everyone in this room for lifting our arms up in that, helping to encourage us in that, and committing to relational discipleship yourselves. Um, even with the babies running around. Um, Disciple-making cohort, a lot of us have been in. There's an opportunity. It's online. It's on Zoom. Rich Hackett will be running it again sometime in the month of July. That's an opportunity for spurring on. I'll end out just thank you all for your lifetime commitment to faithfulness. Thank you all for making your faith practical. But in considering how to make it more practical, these are those questions again. And we'll go back to this slide after singing our songs and taking and praying for communion right now. So after the songs today, we're going to go back to these questions. And I'll be sure to prompt us again. We want to spend just five to ten minutes. Turn to a person next to you and say, hey, how's the Holy Spirit speaking through this sermon? And how can we help you do something about it this week? So let's go to our Father now for a word of prayer and communion. God, we see examples all over the place of institutions, of church movements even, of people who start well but do not finish the race, fight the good fight. Starting well isn't what counts, Lord. Uh, <coughs> salvation alone or as a single event is not what you had in mind. So God, help us to spur one another on towards a faithful faith for a lifetime, for the marriage and not just the wedding, God. God, help us to consider how to bless and encourage and build up and spur on in ways that you would do it, Lord. Help us to remind each other of your faithfulness, your grace, and the hope that you give us, and we should help one another to surrender to and not be divided on. God, as we take this bread representing your body and juice representing your blood, thank you for your faithfulness even to go to the cross. Help us to respond faithfully when you were first faithful to us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.